we're in, you asked for it. Um, the, we got a, an email from a church family member that says, I've never heard a sermon about blended families, something I think the church could benefit from. And immediately when I saw the email, this image popped into my mind because this movie is, it's hilarious. Like, like I just see Terry Crews blended. Like, like, <laughs> um, but there's also another subject matter that um, comes up honestly, every year. Um, and so we're going to blend um, a couple of subjects. So we've got that. I've never heard a sermon about blended families, but also a sermon about biblical singleness. And here's the thing about both. I recognize that both of them come with the challenge of, in the church, we don't often affirm the ways in which the Bible speaks to both of them regularly and shows us how to live them out well. Like there is, there are so many portions of scripture that talk about blended families that discuss biblical singleness and we just kind of recycle what it looks like to have one type of household look. And so it makes sense that we would talk about this during this sermon series. So the title of the sermon is Building a Godly Home. We'll be in two portions of Scripture, one of which actually won't show up on the screen, but I would encourage you to read it. It's Genesis uh, two chapters. I know. That's why it's not going to show up on the screen. Y'all, you'll get mad at me. It's like, whoa, that's a lot of slides there, buddy. Like... <laughs> Genesis um, chapter 29 through 30, we'll talk about why that's important here in a minute, but we will read together 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. Um, I want to pray, and then uh, we'll jump into it. So, Father, you are God. You are good. Lord, I thank you that we get to do life together, and all the ways in which life presents itself, we get to do it together, or we do not have to do it alone. Uh, we are not, we don't have to be independent of one another. We don't have to figure it out. Uh, we get to. We're invited to a community of what it is to not just worship together, but also do life together. And so I am uniquely excited about this sermon because of that. Lord, will you bless um, our time in your word and this time in uh, Scripture together. Lord, truly, truly, may everything I say be glorifying to you and build up this body in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you Google families, you will likely see a picture like this. If you just type in Google, like you type in family in Google, you will likely see this. And the pattern is pretty similar, right? These are, there were five pictures when I first typed in family, on a search engine, the five pictures that had humans in them, these were the four. The other one was just like, you know, somebody had their hands and there was like a piece of wood that had family written on it, right? This is what many of us imagine, and it's what we call a nuclear family, nuclear home. There is a 
mom, a dad, and some younger humans. And quite honestly, that's, that's like the picture we have in our mind, even when we're talking about families in church as well, right? Most of us grew up with that kind of think, talking about family. Like you'll see some of you grew up with this next image, and I'm really trying not to trigger you, so please know that that's not the point, <laughs> right? And some of you immediately had disgust in your, in your mind, and some of you were like, yes, that's exactly it, <laughs> Right? We're not about to discredit the first four pictures, and I'm not about to argue about this one because that's not the point of the sermon. I'm just saying this is what we norm, this is the norm that we hear of, and it is a way. It's a way. I'm using that article of speech on purpose. It is a way to do family and to do households and to do and to build a godly household. And if your household looks like this, glory to God. <laughs> cool. But I'm also letting you know right now that that's not the way. It's not the only way that a godly household is built. It's just a way. And a part of this sermon, I'm telling you the end before we even get there, a part of this sermon is to affirm that there are more, that there's more than just this. And it's important because increasingly households look like the next picture. <laughs> Single parents, which sometimes when we, oftentimes when we think of single parents, Many of us, the first thing that comes to mind is a single mom, and that's not wrong. But there are also single dads, right? There, sometimes when we think of family, and it's actually really hard even at school. Like those of you who work in schools, you have to change your language. You can't just say mom. You can't just say dad because what if grandparents are raising them? You have to say guardian, right? Like, please have your guardian <laughs> sign this paper, right? Grandparents are raging. Adoption. Like, we don't often talk about adoption as a part of building a godly home, but it's in Scripture, all through Scripture, right? More and more families and household looks like a single person and a pet. Please do not tell me that your, your fur babies are not a part of the family. I'm telling you, there's whole, there's whole, like it's a whole wave of culture that has gone from seeing dogs as just security <laughs> as literally their children. Like we celebrate our dog's birthday, fam. He gets treats on his birthday, okay, because he's, he's our fifth child, <laughs> <laughs> and he's huge. <laughs> I want us to, before we even move forward, we need to have an agreement that this is a way that households look. This is a way, and it is completely appropriate. We don't talk about building that kind of household often, often 
But it's okay for us to affirm that's what households look like. And the truth is, if we don't affirm it, then what we can't do is encourage one another and how to live that in a godly way. Because ultimately, we're saying there's only one godly way to do a family and a household. Everything else is lesser than. So let's focus on this one way. And then everything else that doesn't look like that is some diminished form of family. And that's not godly. Singleness is not a diminished form of adulthood. Blended families is not a diminished form of building a household. It's, and having a nuclear dad, mom, and kids does not automatically make you godly. Because there's a whole lot of messy stuff happening in nuclear families. So it can't be about how the household is made up, right? It can't be how it's comprised. It has to be something else. Scripture honors several types of family structures. And I put households in parentheses because really, in truth, nuclear families, the way that we think about them, really doesn't, like, exist in biblical time, right? Like, they're pretty much all multi-generational like, I, it's okay for us to know that. Like, gen, multi-generational and, like, servants and people that just wanted to be on, like, <laughs> like, ooh, I like what you got going on. I'm about to be a part of your household. Like, that's, that may feel strange to us, but that's not strange for biblical culture and definitely not in the Old Testament. Old Testament's like, yeah, I like what you got going on, Abraham. Can I come? Sure. <laughs> and you become a part of Abraham's family. Household, um, the Greek word for that is oikos. And it basically, it's everybody with whom you share closeness. You share proximity. This is a household. Amen. We are a family. That's actually why we call ourselves a church family. We share closeness and connection. And so when Scripture talks about family and household, it's being quite a bit more broad than we think about it because we think the people who share my mailbox. And that's not exactly how Scripture talks about it. But we're still going to talk about how to build a godly family slash household, and we're going to bring it into our culture. And I need you to see this image, which is kind of, it's, it's kind of it's a little confusing. So there are several, several blended families. We'll talk about some of them in a minute. But I want to show you one of the most blended families in Scripture. Jacob's blended bunch. Right? So in, the, in Israel's patriarchs, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is the third kind of father, so to speak, in Israel. And Jacob's name is eventually changed to Israel. Before his name is changed to Israel, though, he has all these kids. <laughs> so I'm going to just like, I'm going to, this is what's in Genesis chapter 29 verse, you know, listen, chapter 29 through 30. To get all of the ways in which these humans show up on that planet, you got to read them two chapters. We're not going to read them together, but I'm going to tell you the paraphrased version of it. 
Some of you know the story of Jacob. Jacob was going to get a wife. He went to a distant relative to get a wife. And honestly, he ended up getting tricked into marrying uh, the eldest daughter named Leah. He doesn't actually love Leah. Leah's like, God, I'm not loved. <laughs> so help me out here. They, so Leah ends up having uh, Jacob's first children. Reuben is first. Simeon is second. Levi is third. Judah is fourth. And, prime, and ultimately, Scripture says that God blessed her womb because she wasn't loved by her husband. It's really, really, um, listen, just go read it, right? <clears throat> okay. Now, Rachel, the wife he was trying to actually marry, that he really loved, was like, God, I'm jealous because I don't have any children, so can you give me some too? She, never get, she doesn't get pregnant. And she said, well, then I'm going to, like, have a surrogate, my maidservant, is going to be my surrogate mom, and then they have Dan and Nephtali. This is six children in the end, right? So then Leah is like, wait a minute. <laughs> I want more children too because I'm still not loved. So have my maidservant be a surrogate. And then Gad and Asher are born from Zilpah. And then eventually Rachel is like, please, God. <laughs> um, oh, uh, and just, oh, sorry, not even there yet. After Gad, and, after Gad and Asher from Zilpah, Leah gets pregnant again and has Issachar and then Zebulun and then Dina, which is their only named daughter. At this point, they have 11 children. And there's surrogacy that's a part of this process. And then Rachel has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. What we know of their children are 13 names. But I think it's okay for us to also say out loud that it was a part of their culture at that time that not every daughter was named in Scripture. So I'm not saying they have more, but I am saying potentially. There's potentially unnamed daughters. You're like, well, then why did they name Dina? Dina is an important story in Genesis so they told us about Dina so it had context to the story that played out. But there are potentially other daughters that are there. I don't want to like, I don't want to, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there. I just wanted to make it a point, right? This is the most blended family. <laughs> and it shows up in Scripture in all the different ways that they populated that household, which was more than just those people. There are other people that are a part of Jacob's household too, but it is a blended family. There are also other blended families. Abraham's family is blended for many of the same reasons. You can go ahead and go to the next slide for me. Abraham's family is blended. I already talked about Jacob and Israel. David's family is blended. Ruth's family. Has, her household is blended. Why am I saying that? Some of you are like, uh, Ruth didn't have any kids. You don't have to have kids to have a blended household. Ruth was married to Naomi's son. They were one household. Ruth's husband died. Naomi and Ruth go back to, go back to Israel, right? This is how this plays out. And then Ruth marries Naomi, or excuse me, Ruth marries 
her father-in-law's cousin. <laughs> it's, it's a blended mix, like, right? It's a blended mix of what a household looks like. Samuel's family is both, it's, Samuel is one of the most exciting stories of adoption in Scripture. His mother was praying for a child and dedicated her child to God's service. And Eli was the priest, and Eli adopted Samuel into his household to train him into what it was to be a priest. It's not the first story of adoption, but it is one. Jesus is his Joseph and Mary household was blended. Some of it's like, I know some of you is like, that's low-hanging fruit. That's not fair. Here's why I'm saying that that's important and why it's bigger than all the others. God could have chose to come down here in any family structure. There was no reason why God had to come that way. There really isn't. When you think about it, like you said, well, yeah, God had to fulfill prophecy. God made up the prophecy. <laughs> God could have did whatever God wanted to do. <laughs> but chose to come into some of the mix and even some of the beauty and challenges of what it is to be a blended family. Joseph is not Jesus's biological father, but was his daddy. Right? Very clearly his daddy. And if there's any confusion about how, what that looks like, read through the Gospels. The first two chapters, especially Luke, or excuse me, Matthew. Matthew does a really good job of highlighting how much of a good daddy Joseph was to Jesus. And then after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had other children together. Jesus has siblings that, for all intents and purposes, what we would call half-siblings. That's not how they talked about families back then. It's just not. It's not a way in which there was no steps and halves and this and that. Like, you really just, that wasn't it. Scripture, I think when we talk about how households are built in Scripture, it really is, I, as an adult, desire to be responsible for you. So, you're mine. There was not a legal adoption process, and the community affirmed that's their child. <laughs> It's kind of the way that that worked, but honestly, it's not that different. I know that we don't, so here's the thing, we've got, we actually have to do work culturally to honor and respect that a little bit more, but it's really no different. Like many of us, if that's not our story, we have people in our life who I want to be a motherly figure in your life. So, you're mine. Amen. 
I want to be a fatherly figure. It doesn't mean that now in our world, it doesn't mean I immediately have legal custody of you just because I want to be. But if I want to love you like a dad, who's going to stop me? <laughs> right? Like that's kind of like who's going to stop me from loving you like a dad? <laughs> Scripture affirms more than and primarily because DNA didn't, I mean, it wasn't even a thing then, so nobody was going on Maury to figure out who the baby daddy is, right? So because that wasn't a thing, it was, I am taking responsibility for this child so they are mine. And that is more like Scripture than anything. There are several other blended households. Those are just a few. And I, I, and I, I didn't put this one up here because, um, and I, I'm sad that I didn't, um, because there's also like, there's a couple of stories of single parent households too. Um, and one of my favorites is there's a story where Elijah um, is um, performing a miracle. <laughs> for this single mother and her son. Um, it's like one of the most significant miracles in Scripture where God preserved their flour and their oil for years. <laughs> like, I got just enough flour and just enough oil to make one loaf of bread, and God preserves it for years. But we, we, it's easy for us to just bypass the reality that Elisha is engaged with a single-parent household. And God honors that single-parent household by performing this miracle. Yes, they needed it, but if we affirm that God can do whatever God wants to do, then it doesn't have to show up in single-parent households. It doesn't have to show up in blended families. God is choosing to do something intentionally. And I think that's something that oftentimes... We miss. We miss. And I spent some time like really trying to process, why would we miss that? A nuclear family, family, right? Two parents, two and a half children, and on average, is probably like the lowest common denominator on how children are procreated. You do need two beings to create another being. And so it's kind of the lowest common denominator when we start thinking about how a family can be built. So it's easier for us to go there immediately. The truth is, if we tried to like have a conversation about how all the ways a household could be built, we'd be there for a long time, <laughs> right? And teachers know that. Please have your mom or your dad or your guardian or your aunt or your uncle or your grandmother or your grandparent or the neighbor that picks you up after school sign this document, right? <laughs> right? If you serve children, like, you know, like, ah, have somebody who can sign stuff. Look, put their name on this paper, please. <laughs> it's, because, it's because it's not one way, but there is something that we kind of just go to because it's simpler. And um, that's okay for us to know, too. 
I think one of the things about Scripture is when Scripture gives instruction, which we'll talk about in a moment, it does tend to go to the lowest common denominator, not because all the other things aren't important. I'm going to tell you stories about all the other things, but let me give you instruction about this. This is something that's important for you to see because it is applicable in all the other ways too, right? Children, obey your parents. That's applicable regardless of what your family structure looks like. Parent as in the adult that is taking responsibility for you, right? Fathers, don't like provoke your children to anger. That can look like a number of different things. There's some children that you've decided to take responsibility for. Don't <laughs> provoke them to anger. That's more like how Scripture is speaking about that. Halfway transitioning, because we're still talking about a godly, like building a godly household. And right now, a part of building a godly household is talking about affirming that there are several different ways. But a part of this is also talking about singleness, because singleness is a legitimate, godly way of being in the earth. It's a legitimate, godly way of being. Some of us have a lot of, like, unpacking to do there. Because if you grew up in a Christian context, especially those of us who were growing up before, like, the 2000s, it was like, Marriage is godly, and everything else will lead you to sin. That's basically how we talked about it. That's, and I repent on behalf of everyone who has taught that way, because it's not truth. Marriage can be godly. <laughs> can be. Marriage can be godly. Singleness can be godly, and it is up completely appropriate. And Paul goes beyond just saying it's completely appropriate, right? So that's what we're getting into in 1 Corinthians. Now, regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord from them, for them. I need you to, like, catch that. How Paul don't have a command from, but we do, right? Like, y'all better hurry up and get married, right? <laughs> you, right? Paul doesn't have a command for him. He has, we'll get to the advice in a minute, but it's important that we catch that Paul is not saying, the Lord has told me to tell you this. Because it sets the tone for what he's about to say. On purpose, Paul says, I don't have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted. And I'll share it with you. <laughs> because of the present crisis, and that's talking really about the oppression that the early church was experiencing, I think it is best to remain as you are. How is that? If we're talking to context, remain single. <laughs> if you have a wife, talking to the men, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a if you if you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. <laughs> but if you do get married, it is not a sin. 
And if a young woman gets married, it's not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles. And I am trying to spare you those problems. He's talking about a context. So don't go like, oh, now they're trying to tell me marriage brings troubles. I ain't saying that. It's a context. He said because of the current crisis they're in, he's trying to spare them from some heartache. So let's talk real briefly about what that crisis is. Christians are dying regularly because of their belief in Christ. Christians are dying regularly because of their belief in Christ. There are people who are literally being snatched from their homes. And as opposed to building your life with another person whom it is pretty likely they will be snatched from you, Paul is actually encouraging them to stay single, which is an interesting dynamic, especially when we talk about our cultural, like the Christian cultural idea of like get married at all costs. Who cares if there's going to be trouble? You'll go through the trouble together. I'm not saying that's not a thing. That's why Paul doesn't say it either. He's like, if you're married, stay married. If you want to get married, get married. I'm not, I'm just, listen, I'm just trying to save you from some heartache. Okay, it's hard out here for a widow. That's basically what he's saying. It's hard out here for a widow. So don't make one. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who keep, excuse me, those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them, for the world as we know it will soon pass away. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. Man, this is some interesting stuff. I told you before, Paul is not diminishing, discrediting, and saying marriage is bad. That's not what Paul is saying. The truth is, if you read earlier in this chapter, Paul is like, listen, just be single like me. <laughs> Paul is single. But think about what that is. Like, this is someone who has written more than half of the New Testament who is single. A part of why Paul can write more than half of the New Testament is because he's single. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm telling you, I absolutely love being a husband and father. I love it. Would not trade it for the world. Ain't trying to change that either. But if we're also honest, this wouldn't be the first book <laughs> if, I, if, if I wasn't taking the kids to practice and, and, and making sure and date night and making sure that they eat because I don't actually need dinner every night. So I can just type. 
Paul is saying that your life is not worthless just because you don't have a spouse. In fact, you have a capacity that not everybody who does have a spouse has. Lean into that. You have energy and capacity for spreading the gospel in ways that people who have to sit at soccer practices don't. And I know you're thinking, well, I'll just, I'll just, you know, tell them about Jesus at the practice. No, you won't. You'll talk about the weather. You'll talk about the other thing your kids are doing. But if you don't have that in the forefront of your mind, you get to focus that energy on something. That's what Paul is really saying. He says, his, talking about a married man, interests are divided. In the, same way, in the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. You see how he's like intentionally saying, I'm not telling you what to do right now. I'm just answering your question. Yeah. <laughs> right? You asked about single people. I don't really have a command from the Lord, but if I think about it long enough, this is what I think. I'm not saying this so you don't get married. Those of you who are processing getting married, getting married, please get married. Do it. It's a wonderful, beautiful way in which a way in which we glorify God and demonstrate a part of who God is to the world. But let's not get it twisted. Marriage isn't the only way to demonstrate God to the world. That's the whole point. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. That's what Paul talks about when he's talking about singleness. A part of why I love being a husband and father and wouldn't change is because I would be distracted. I'll let y'all figure that out. <laughs> right? I'd be distracted. That's another reason why Paul says, look, go on and get married then. <laughs> That's earlier in the chapter. But for some of us, that distraction may not be there. For some of us, like, oh, I'm good. Some of us, like me, I'm being honest with you. I would not be able to be as effective in ministry without my wife. Yeah. That's just the truth of how that is for me. I need someone who sees details and sees things coming that I don't see. Paul is saying, I want you to do whatever helps you. Some of you, your mind is designed for going after it, single and seeing all the things. But you have been restricted to believe you have to get married because that's the only thing that honors God. And I want you to peel that back a little bit because I'm not saying that it's wrong to want it. I am just saying it's not the only thing that's right. It's not the only thing that's right. And if Scripture affirms it so boldly, as to perform several miracles in this, like perform the most significant miracle in Israel's history. They got a whole holiday dedicated to it in a single mother's household. 
and have half, more than half of the New Testament written by a single guy, there's something that there's value there that's not something to ignore. Last few verses in this. But if a man decides, oh, sorry. But if a man thinks that he's treating his fiance improperly and will inevitably give in to his passion, distractions, let him marry her as he wishes. It is not a sin. But if he decides firmly not to marry and there is no urgency and can control his passions, he does well not to marry. So the person who marries his fiance does well, and the person who doesn't marry does even better. <laughs> a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but only if he loves the Lord. But in my opinion, it would be better for her to stay single. And I think I am giving you counsel from God's spirit when I say this. Some of us have never read it with that lens. And maybe we've never been even encouraged to go to that part of Corinthians. And here's what I'm saying to you. The sermon isn't about diminishing marriage. But I'm also going to be honest in saying if the only thing that we elevate is one way to do a godly household, then it's okay for us to take it down a couple pegs so that we can see clearly. Right? We talk about that in other areas of our culture. So it's okay for us to talk about it here too. God honors marriage and singleness and blended families and grandparents raising children and people adopting folks and people having pets and God honors it. God honors it because it has nothing to do with the population made up of the people in your address. God in the center makes a household godly. Not marital status or family makeup. That's why I say a marriage can be godly because there's a whole lot of messy marriages where God is not the center of it. God is some like auxiliary influence. Like when stuff gets hard and on holidays, we'll talk about, we'll talk to Jesus. It's Thanksgiving. Somebody should pray, pray. No. A godly household looks like God being a part of every single part of what's going on. We pray in the morning together, period. Family, if you have people in your household with you, pray with them. I'm not saying it has to be an elaborate pastoral prayer. Even if it's just, thank you, God, for this day, help us. That is a prayer that, put God, that puts God in the center of your home. Guess what? Single people, you can start your day like that too. Because God in the center of your home is what makes it godly. I'm not telling you to pretend that you know everything about God to invite God into the middle. Because here's what it looks like when God's not in the middle. Your troubles are. And your troubles are the most significant influence in your household. Let's just be real. If God's not in the very middle of your household, then your financial trouble is what's in the middle of your household dictating to you what you do. 
The challenge you have with your child's diagnosis is the thing that's in the middle of your household. The challenge that you have with not being able to resolve that conflict is at the middle of your household. The challenge that you have with your health is in the middle of your household, and it's dictating to you every single thing you do. But if God is in the middle, those other things are influencing but not shaping. A godly household is built with God in the center of it. Anything else looks like my problems being the Lord of my life. That doesn't mean that my problems go away. It just means I have something else dictating to me how I navigate them rather than my problems dictating to me how I navigate God. That's what a godly household looks like, and that has nothing to do with whether or not you're married. That has nothing to do with whether or not you have biological children. That has nothing to do with any of those things. Trust me when I tell you, if you invite God into the middle, I don't care what your population looks like. Your household will be godly. And that is what the world needs to see. The world doesn't need to see just godly marriages. The world really does need to see godly singleness and godly blended families and godly grandparents raising godly grandchildren and godly blendedness and godly pets. Yes, I said it. The world needs to see. What does it look like for godly people to care for animals? The world needs to see that. The world needs to see that also God's Spirit is involved and invested in all of those different ways. Because if the world doesn't see that, there are people who are anxious around Jesus simply because they have decided to live single and they are not welcome in God's family because of it. And that is not a thing. God honors blended families and singleness. We should too. If we have the characteristics and the spirit and the passions of Creator God with us and in us, we will tell stories about all of the ways households are built, just like Scripture does. We will absolutely affirm that a marriage should look like a husband loving Christ, like loving his wife like Christ loves the church. We absolutely should affirm that. And we should also affirm that being single allows you to bless the world in some ways that that husband can't. Bless the world in some ways that that wife can't. They are doing their part to show a part of the character of God. You get to do yours. And the day that you decide that you'll get married doesn't mean you graduated or you grew up. It just means your role in the household of God shifted a little bit. Not that you don't have responsibility, it just shifted a little bit. I also want to point out one random little thing about blended families. I do not know this firsthand. 
I know it secondhand because I have family members that have blended families and I have friends who are a part of blended families. But there is a unique grace. I'm actually going to lump both blended and adoptive families into this reality. There's a unique grace for navigating the emotional challenge of what it is to live that. It's a beautiful thing. So when I say challenge, I don't say that as a negative thing. But there's a strength, a humility, a grace, and a mercy for navigating what it is for when a child says to you, you ain't my daddy anyway, and you still love them like a daddy. Or all of the uniquenesses that come along with being able to say how, how the first four pictures on Google look it's not this family, and we will ride the beautiful roller coaster that comes along with that. You're having a hard day, I'm with you in it. Which is not unlike a nuclear family, but it's also a little more intense. It's okay for us to say that. That's what it is to be family. It's a little more intense. I have not talked to someone who is adopted who does not say it's intense trying to figure out my identity in this reality. It's intense. Family, we should be praying for those families and encouraging and being acknowledging that there's a unique humility and grace that's on display in that household that we all benefit from learning from. Every single blended family I have ever seen has to navigate a significant transition in the culture of their house. Every single one. And those of us who don't have to navigate that, we just keep getting to go on as we go. And there's something that comes in that humility and mercy that's there that we can learn from. But if we don't honor the story in your household, if we don't honor that, then we won't seek you out when I need to demonstrate the kind of humility and grace and mercy that you live with daily. A part of what Scripture does in honoring that, uh, that blended bunch of what feels like Kind of, you read through Genesis 29 and 30, it kind of feels chaotic. But these, this are, these are all the tribes of Israel. Israel's whole identity came out of that chaos. How they see themselves, how they know themselves came out of the challenge of what it is to be a blended family. And if we don't see that in Scripture, then we are intentionally overlooking something God is trying to show us we can see a mercy and a humility that comes along with blended families and adoptive families that those of us who that is not our reality, we can grow and learn from. And that's a part of how we honor like God does, as we see the strength there. And we have mercy with one another for the inevitable challenges that come along with what a household is in general. Because I say, I say often, and the older we are together, the more challenging it is for us to live with somebody else. 
like, it's like, listen, I just want to do it my way. And can you just read my brain real quick? So <laughs> households, and th- there's challenges one way or the other. And the mercy that comes along with that is something that God wants us to see. Whew. I want to pray. God, our Father, the Father of the most blended family in all <laughs> history, creation, whatever, you do this. You give us grace to be able to decide. Will we be single? Will we be married? Will we do blended? Will we not? You give us grace to make that decision. You do not dictate to us or impose upon us a particular way of living. You just say, whatever way you choose to live, do so in a way that brings me glory. Give us grace to do that, Lord. Give us grace to live in a way that brings you glory regardless of what our household population looks like. Teach us. God, as a family, as a church family, give us grace to honor the beauties and the complexities that come along with singleness and blendedness. Give us an intentionality to look for your spirit on display in these places. Give us a discipline to not speak so highly of one way that we subconsciously diminish all the others because you don't. You don't. You hold value for all of these things. So give us grace to also hold value for all of them too. And we will praise you. We'll honor you. Uh, We trust you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.